Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Charles Fisher. He's the founder and CEO of Unlearn AI. Uh, The website is unlearn.ai. And he's going to talk about uh, how to accelerate clinical trials uh, using AI and weave in some COVID-19 stuff probably. So, Charles, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, tell me what's uh, so. What's the basis of the company Unlearn? What uh, how did it start, and you know what's the premise of the company? So how it started and the premise of the company are intertwined, but not always exactly the same, right? There's a, there's a journey. So if I, I sort of start with with how we started when we were looking, so the company was founded about three and a half years ago by myself, uh, John Walsh and Aaron Smith, and, and all of us have, have PhDs in theoretical physics and had been working different applications of machine learning to, to various kinds of problems. From uh, my experience, I had, I had worked at Pfizer as a machine learning scientist, and then we had actually all met working at a, at a technology company applying machine learning to virtual reality. So we kind of had these broad machine learning experiences, but kind of what we saw was a machine learning and AI ecosystem driven by a handful of big technology companies. So the majority of research, I mean, 99.9% of research that's been done on machine learning has been driven by Google and Facebook and Baidu and you know all of these same big companies. And the result of that has been that there's been an agenda of machine learning research that is where a lot of resources go into problems that they care about, right? So face recognition, there's a lot of research that's gone into that problem. Self-driving cars, a lot of research into that problem. And those, are, those can be important problems, but there's then therefore a lack of investment in other areas. And in particular, there's been a real lack of investment in developing machine learning approaches to learn from medical data. Um, and we were looking at that hole and basically thinking about how we could 
create a company to not only to just use new developments in machine learning, but to build them and invent them to solve problems in medicine. So that's kind of the origin of the idea. Since most of the research has been done by you know Google, Facebook, whoever, Amazon, will it benefit the, the wider public or are they just keeping it to themselves? And so not only is most of the attention there, it's proprietary. So it's tricky. Uh, I would say yes and no, right? Um, and what I mean by that is yes, pretty much the majority of these companies, when they are developing new techniques, they publish their, their, how those techniques work. So they publish academic papers that describe those techniques. Now, granted, I, again, the focus on particular problems that could be you know, taken and used by people in society for good and for, and for bad. I think that where one thing comes that's a little bit different is that the scale at which Google, for example, can do machine learning is like very different from what like most people or other companies could do. So you've seen some models, for example, coming out of Google, coming out of OpenAI, where it's costing, you know, like $5 million in computer time to train a model, <laughs> just one machine learning model, right? Um, so even though there's a paper that describes their methods, is that really something that's accessible? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> so, so, so I think that there is this question uh, as to, you know, where, as we're going forward, not only in terms of that cost, but also just the energy consumption of some of those enormous machine learning models. But that's a, that's a, a little bit outside of, of the scope of what we're working on at Unlearn. Although the, the models that we use, again, being developed for really different purposes focused on, on medicine, uh, tend to be actually quite different from the types of machine learning methods that people are applying in, in other fields. Yeah, so you decided to focus on, you know, analyzing medical data so what are some of the models? What are some of the things that you're looking at that you want to solve? So the main thing that we want to be able to do is essentially to create computer simulations of people. So the idea is that we'd like to create what we call a digital twin, which would be a simulation informed by data collected on an individual that enables us to ask what would likely happen to that person under a variety of scenarios. So, you know, think about, you know, down the road, again, this is in the future, but maybe we have a patient who comes in with a particular type of cancer, and then you have, you know, various types of maybe imaging and gene sequencing and other kinds of data. And then we can ask, okay, well, what are the likely outcomes for this particular patient, given all of that information, if they're, you know, receive treatment regimen A or B or C, and you could simulate those different outcomes. And that requires a, a lot of data across lots of therapeutic areas, as well as, you know, really sophisticated machine learning methods for creating those kinds of simulations. And where we're focused on today is just a real subset of that particular problem, uh, which is its application in clinical trials. Yeah, tell me about some of the nuances of clinical trials. How would, how does AI uh, help and like, what are some of the stumbling blocks right now on them? So every clinical trial is a comparison of two outcomes. So there is a outcome of what would happen to a patient if they were to receive a new experimental treatment. And you compare that to what would happen if they did not receive that new treatment, but maybe received a placebo or maybe in addition to the, whatever is of the current standard treatment for that, for that disease. So you're going to compare those two different outcomes. And so if you think about that particular, every clinical trial as a comparison, you can ask 
well, where do we get information? Where could we get information about those two potential outcomes? Well, the new experimental treatment, if that's never been given to any people before, then the only way to get any information about that outcome is to give the drug to some people and see what happens, right? But the other side of that equation, you're comparing it to the current standard treatment regimen. And you can get a lot of information about how patients respond to currently available therapies, either by taking data from previously run clinical trials uh, and using that as a, as a training source, or just taking data from electronic medical records. There's an enormous amount of information about how patients respond to currently available therapies. So the question then is how can we leverage those information to incorporate them into clinical trials while still ensuring that those clinical trials provide the types of robust reliable inferences about treatment effects that we uh, expect them to. And that's really the particular aspect where we're, where we're focused on today. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Are you trying to include all this data, their medical records, the outcome of the trial, I mean, what, what kinds of data are going to go in? Are we all put into the pot to be analyzed? So there's lots of different approaches that people have developed to use these external data. And I've been using them, you know, these approaches for decades in, in some cases. So an example, uh, let's imagine that you wanted to run a really early stage uh, clinical, maybe a phase two clinical trial. There you're just looking for proof of concept. Does it seem like maybe this drug is worth pursuing? Should we go after a larger clinical trial to, to confirm the results? And so in those cases, sometimes people will take a, a group of patients and they'll enroll them into the trial and every single patient will receive the new experimental treatment. So you have no patients randomized to receive the control treatment. It's what we call a single arm trial. And then you could just say, well, let's take all of these patients who have received the new treatment and we'll just compare them to say a placebo arm from a previously run clinical trial. And that's what people would call a historical control. So this enables one to run a clinical trial about half as many patients as you would need if you wanted to run a randomized study. Now, the problem with it is that when you do that, there could be some difference in the patients who received your new treatment and the patients from your previous clinical trial. Maybe you happen to enroll patients who were, had more severe disease 
or maybe they have less access uh, to certain types of care. And as a result, when you, when you look at the difference at the end of that trial between the patients who received the treatment and the previous external patients who did not receive that treatment, you don't know that that difference is due to the treatment, right? You only know that there was a difference between these two groups and maybe it was due to something else. And this is actually something that we saw happen this year. So the hydroxychloroquine trials that came out at the beginning of the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic were of that particular variety. You had patients at two different hospitals. Well, one hospital, patients received hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and a, patients did not receive it at a completely different hospital in a completely different city. And then you do a comparison. Is that a, is that a big deal or it would need to be the same hospital? I guess there's a lot of confounding factors. Like That's exactly right. Not it, the same doctor treating, et cetera. Not the same doctor. It could be a complete, maybe there's older people in one city than another city because cities have different demographics, right? And the thing is, so this is where it gets tricky. Is like, is that a big deal? Maybe, maybe not. Like you just don't know, right? That's that's the problem. Uh, you just don't know. So. So there's, the, there's all of these approaches. People have been using them in the past, but they've been particularly uh, only used for like early stage drug development. You can't, FDA and other regulatory agencies won't use those data to, they won't rely on them for decision-making because you don't know, you can't be sure there wasn't some sort of confounding factor that influenced the results. So the approach that we take involves creating simulations of patients. So what we'll do is we'll take this external data and then we will train these machine learning models on it. And these models then are used to create predictions of outcomes of individual patients in the trial. So when a patient enrolls in a trial, we predict if that patient were to receive a placebo, what would their outcome be? And then that patient is either randomized. So we run randomized trials where you would say, okay, well, that patient is either randomized to the treatment arm or to the control group. And because of that randomized design, we're able to ensure that, that you get robust, reliable inferences that are not sensitive to, uh, to any confounding factor. So you can be sure that when you observe something, it's either, well, there's always just randomness. So there's always that aspect. Um, but you can be sure that it's not just the result of, of sort of different confounders. But we can still leverage this information from these external sources to make these trials much more efficient. So you can get, for example, reductions of, say, you know, 20% fewer patients that you would need to enroll in a clinical trial while still getting just as rigorous of statistical results. So that enables you to run your trial much faster to make it much less expensive while still getting all of the benefits that you would want out of a large random, uh, randomized control trial. Do drug companies have any interest once uh, they've gotten through clinical trials, their stuff's out in public use? I mean, now they really could get a lot more data over time over the first year or two that you know, a drug is being used by the public. Is there any call for that? Do they care? Uh, can your models be trained on those kinds of things? Because now, uh, again, there'll be a lot, you know, there's, sure there will be more confounding factors, but now there's a much wider population that will take something and therefore could, some of the effects will show up when they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, this is becoming a more and more important issue. So it's always been the case that there would be monitoring of drugs after they've been approved and they're just sent to the market, particularly for safety. People often call these phase four clinical trials. Um, and the FDA can require uh, these and put different types of requirements on, uh, on post-market surveillance. Um, and people typically would do that for safety. 
one of the reasons people do it for safety is that um, there's something that we call the rule of three, which is sort of just like a rule of thumb st statistics rule, which is if there's some event which is rare, but maybe serious. Um, so maybe you have a probability of, you know, one in a hundred patients are going to have some rare side effect of who received this drug, then you need at least 300 patients to observe it once. That's just one time, right? So if you have rarely rare side effects, clinical trials, which typically only have a few hundred patients will never see them. So the only real way to get at those rare side effects is through these phase four studies. So that's, they've been traditionally used for that. As same thing true for long-term side effects, because, you know, clinical trials are, you might monitor a patient for like a year, but you really want to know, are there going to be long-term side effects? You can only get those from, from phase four studies, but they're also becoming much more important because in insurance companies and other kinds of payers are now much more interested in think only paying for drugs if they're actually having a, a, a beneficial effect for patients in the real world. And so those uh, sort of real world data studies, which are looking exactly at this, at data after approval and trying to understand, is this drug benefiting the patients who are actually receiving it in this broader population? How much benefit are they, are they getting? Is really becoming very important for, you know, as we move towards kind of like value-based care. So only paying for things that work. The difficulty um, is that we, there's no system if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. For uh, having like data like that collected across therapeutic areas in a standardized way. You know, if you think about what happens in a real, in an actual clinical trial, you'll have a group of patients who will go in, typically go into a clinical site, into a hospital, you know, maybe once a month. And they will have a whole battery of tests done once a month for a year, right? And wh where does that happen in the real world, right? You never get that level of information. So the two types of data, I think, are actually quite complementary, but very, very different, right? On the one hand, you have clinical trial data, which is very, very rich, very highly structured, and follows but the small homogeneous group of patients um, over time. Whereas then you have this sort of real world data from the electronic medical record that is very sparse and not very rich, but which follows a very broad, large, broad group of patients. And so I think right, that- but the, the, uh, the effect of the drugs, let's say being tested in clinical trials is for a narrow effect, a narrow therapeutic type of window so even though the data later on now looks completely different and is not nice and neat and orderly, um, I would think that, again, there's a whole host of new things to be learned from it. So I think the analysis on both sides would inform the other, right? In theory, I would say yes. In theory, yes. The, the stumbling block is having the real world data be collected, be reliable, that you can actually use it for stuff. You know, I, I think that it's, it's funny, you know, even clinical trial data, which is the highest quality data that you can get has a lot of problems with it that are surprising when you actually start look like getting your hands on the data. In real world data have a ton of problems with it. Like there are, I mean, just in the data quality, like is the number that's written in the electronic medical record, is that really what it was? Like, is that lab value really what it was from the blood test? It's not, it, there's a lot more problems with it. And I actually think though that this is, even though that sounds like uh, it's a challenge to me as a machine learning researcher. I actually look at that as a very interesting opportunity, right? This is another well, one not? of these examples. Why, why isn't there? Um, 
why, why can't there be a hybrid? You know, you do your, your clinical trials and then you do like a fourth one. Like, I don't know if this is what they already do, but a fourth one now that combines a whole different, everyone comes in for a clinical trial, but now they have men, women, young, old, they have you know a lot more off-target people or a much more representative population of who would actually take a particular drug. So they're still controlling most of the factors, but not a whole set of other ones, but it's not nearly as wild and crazy as just you know anecdotal data out in the field. So sometimes, I mean, FDA could in principle require, they could require that kind of thing. And there are ways that people do kind of randomize trials in, in the field, but they're, they're just much more challenging to run. They'd be very expensive. And, you know, you need to have all of these people participating, right? Like, yeah, I'd need informed consent from all of these people who would participate in that study. And so, you know, if you, th- if you think about it, if you're a patient and there has been a clinical trial which demonstrated efficacy of a new treatment compared to standard of care. So there's been a clinical trial. It's shown in the phase three study that it was effective, more effective than standard of care. Um, why would you as a patient participate in another trial which might randomize you to that standard of care? Well, why do people participate in the first place? You know? But in the first place, we like in medicine, we'd say you have what equipoise. So there is uncertainty. There's real uncertainty that, that, that the new treatments may not work. Right. In many clinical trials, the new treatments just they, they may work and they may not work, you know, and that's why we that's why we run the experiment. Right. That's why we that's why we play the game. That's what they say in sports. Right. You don't know who's going to win. So you play the game. Yeah, but I, it would still be the same thing. If, you know, if, if a trial like from what I understand, a lot of clinical trials are not done on women, more men. And for instance, a woman, you know, has a monthly cycle. So if I'm a woman and I have a certain condition and they've done a clinical trial, but it was only on men okay, great. It worked for men. Wonderful. But will it work for me? So there's still that uncertainty there. So I wouldn't just look at it as like, oh, you know, I may get the standard of care and there's still the risk. There's still the uncertainty. And I still would want to know. I would think you could recruit people, but am I wrong? Well, I, I, I think, you know, there are certainly people who think like you and who want to benefit science. But the truth is that recruiting patients for cl- even regular clinical trials, the hardest thing, um, you know, large numbers of clinical trials fail to meet their recruitment criteria. And the number one reason that patients give for not participating in clinical trials is that they don't want to receive a placebo. Mm-hmm. So, so like, like it, it, and that's in, that's in the case of new drugs that you have no information that they might work. You know, one of the areas that becomes challenging for like, there's this constant challenge. So let's imagine that I'm starting a clinical trial today and it often might take two years to enroll enough patients for, for me to finish my clinical trial, right? What happens if like, uh, you can even think about this right now, if you wanted to start a vaccine clinical trial today for COVID-19, but there's already vaccines that are available. If you had the ability to get one of those vaccines, why would you, part- <laughs> why would you participate in, the, say, a placebo-controlled clinical trial, right? So there, there are all of these challenges around recruiting and enrollment that have to do, I mean, there's many, many issues that, that feed into these challenges. But ultimately, I think the goals that, that we want to achieve and that the industry wants to achieve are essentially along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, How do we do these things? How do we use technologies to get the best information about treatment effects that we can? And it's just typically done in this sort of stepwise manner where the first goal is to get, you know, in the most ideal circumstances, does the drug work, 
right? Does, is the drug effective under ideal circumstances? And we can develop new technologies that help us to answer that question as quickly and efficiently as possible. And then when you start to put these things into the field, you still do, yeah, so phase four studies as, we, as you're talking about, are, they are run all the time and these are becoming something that's even more standard especially as you could imagine, again, other, other kinds of uses of technology, maybe where you, know, you could use wearables or, or measurement devices in the home on the patient to actually just monitor how they're progressing without them having to go into, go into a site. There's a lot of research on that. And I think that those things will be important for understanding drug effects and drug safety over time even though they may not be that like widely used and relied upon today, I think that they will be more widely used in the future. Well, let's, let's return to the AI, since that's your specialty. I apologize for taking you on the side, side journey, but how do you model a patient then? You know, what, what data do you use and you know, how do you go about this modeling? So we use, we collect data from a variety of different sources, typically starting with clinical trial data because actually there's a, there's a really clear parallel to, I think, what we were talking about with, with how do you design a data set? So, you know, there's lots of conversations about in machine learning these days, not just in healthcare, but broadly about how, you know, you can have biases in your data sets and how those things can, can then lead to, to biases in the output. So designing a data set is actually really important. And so we typically are starting with clinical trial data that's very, very rich um, and a very high quality and then trying to find some of these other sources of data that come from broader populations that we can also include. And then, so what we'll basically have is for a particular patient, we'll have the relevant variables that, you know, for their disease. So like in Alzheimer's disease, we have, uh, you know, tests of a patient's memory, of their ability to, to function. We have blood tests that describe, you know, the functioning of the different organ systems. We also will have things that maybe don't change over time. So you might have genetic information or just basic background about the patient. And then we're trying to create simulations that will predict how all of those different things will change over time for that patient. So we're starting with this data set, you know, that might have say 10,000 patients who've been followed for you know, one or two years. And then we're sort of encapsulating that information in a generative machine learning model that's able to create these, these computer simulations. And we work in this sort of general area that people call deep learning, uh, applying different methods that uh, are both based on sort of, you know, the fundamental advances that have come out of that field, but also leveraging a lot of new inventions that we've developed to be able to work with this particular style of data. So, I mean, what are the early learnings uh, what are some of the challenges you're having that you can talk about? You know, like what, what are some of the critical elements of patient data that help you model? You know, what are some nice to haves and what, what challenges? Well, uh, the big challenge is missing data. One of the things that it's missing data is in general, uh, a difficult problem in statistics and, and in machine learning. It's one that, for example, if you're looking at images, you don't typically have to have to worry about. You don't have uh, lots of uh, missing pixels or things typically in an image, but in medical data, you have tons of tons of missing values. Um, maybe a patient just doesn't come into one of the visits. They they get busy. They're unable to make it into the hospital on a particular month, and so you miss that month. Or maybe they show up, but they only get a subset of the different tests. And then in addition, an individual study tends to have only maybe a couple hundred patients in it, and that's not enough. 
right, to do real machine learning. We want to get large data sets for machine learning. So we have to integrate data from across different studies. And now you have this problem of maybe, maybe the studies didn't measure the same thing. So how do you then integrate them together? So the biggest challenge for us is really in, in one is building that integrated data set um, and doing all the quality control and things that are necessary to, to have it to be a sufficient quality that we can learn from. And then even there, like the quality of the data that you get in healthcare for machine learning is just so much lower than what you would expect if you were like a machine learning researcher at like an ad tech company or something. Um, it's just, it's a very different situation. So trying to handle with all of those, those problems that you get with medical data, a uh, lot of missing data, a lot of outliers, various kinds of data being integrated together. Those are the types of problems that we're typically trying to overcome. Well, it seems like if uh, a drug company is going to use you, they've got to have you on board early to make sure that you can tell them, don't forget to get this data. We need at least 30 points of that. We need this, that, and the other. Otherwise, we're going to have holes. We can't help you. Uh, well, for, in most cases, we are working for the training data sets. Um, we are building those things ourselves by uh, forming partnerships with lots of different companies, with academic research groups, with consortia, with regulators, of, of bringing all of those parties together and then trying to get the data set built. So the model, like our model for Alzheimer's disease, we've got about 7,000 patients in it. And those patients have been followed for you know, a couple of years to where we have a, around 40,000 uh, like patient visits in terms of time. And so... Uh, you know, that data sets integrated across, you know, more than 20 different studies. And that can then be used to build a model that we can then use multiple times with different pharmaceutical companies, right? So it's not necessarily saying like, oh, well, we're building a model just for your particular Alzheimer's disease trial. Instead, it's more that we're trying to build a model of Alzheimer's disease that we can use reliably across different clinical trials in that field. Um, and then in addition, We've done a lot of statistical research on how we can incorporate these predictions into trials and design, use them to design more efficient trials um, where we can guarantee good statistical properties from those trials. So there's kind of this holistic approach to starting from where we control the data set collection. We think about how to do the modeling and how to do, then design these trials with it. I think that that's one of the things that's really important whenever we think about AI tools for applications, right? Like one of the areas where you're seeing a lot of discussion right now in AI ethics is about these models that are producing biased outputs. And that certainly is a problem. And it's something that a lot of people are thinking about, but you can't necessarily separate out the AI from the use, right? If you can find a way to use a technology, the ultimate goal is that we want the uses of the technologies to be good. Right? We want them to work well when we use them to not cause any additional um, uh, disparities, whether those be economic disparities or health disparities or, or whatever. Um, and so I, the way that we tend to think about it is you start from the use and work backwards, right? Where we say, okay, well, we want to make sure in our case that the application of a machine learning-based predictive model inside of a clinical trial does not increase the probability that that trial uh, has a false positive. It will not bias the estimate of if the treatment effective or not. So we start from that principle and then we work backwards, right? So then we can say, okay, well, yeah, we have how, that. How could, uh, how could that bias the trial? What's the example? 
oh, well, like, let's just imagine that we replace the control arm with a simulation. And, you know, but let's imagine, uh, I'll give a simple example. So suppose we're working in Alzheimer's disease trial and you're gonna get rid of the control group. You're gonna use a simulation of the control group. And on average, a typical, say, patient with Alzheimer's disease might get worse on some cognitive scale by three points per year. So three points per year, they're getting worse. Well, let's imagine that if I have a model that says that these patients get worse by 10 points per year, right? My model's terrible. It's very biased. It says that patients are all getting worse at a rate that they're not. And then you run a drug trial and you give a single arm trial, you give all of the patients some experimental therapy. And even if that therapy doesn't work, those patients are only going to get worse at three points per year because that's the actual rate of progression of the disease. But then I compare it to my model that says 10 points per year and three points is a hell of a lot slower progression than 10 points. So I would be like, this treatment is effective, but the treatment's not effective. The model's biased, right? The, the model was bad and it made it look like the treatment was effective. So that's why it's, it's really not sufficient. So that's why like I say, like you, you could start, you could sort of set up this question of saying like, well, how do we, how do we create models that are good? But what is, what is good? That always depends on the use case. Um, so for us, the first question was to say, well, can we develop methods, not only that we think work well, but that maybe where we can get mathematical guarantees. So we actually have some papers that we published at the end of the year where we are able to prove, so mathematically prove some statistical properties of the trials that we're proposing where we can prove that that incorporation of these machine learning models ensures that you do not have increased false positive rates. Without going into the math, like how do you prove something like that? Like what's it, maybe a small example? Yeah, so the, the intuition behind it is that we're tossed talking about doing randomized trials, right? So kind of the, the, the example that I gave before of how you could have it break down is where you've simulated every patient is, is receiving the treatment and you just have a simulated control group, right? So what happens though, if you blend the two, if, you know, let's say, you know, 75% of the patients in your trial are getting the active treatment and 25% of them are getting a, a control treatment. And then you've created these simulated outcomes for all of them. Well, if I look at that particular group of patients who actually receive the control treatment and I compare their predicted outcomes, then I have a measure of internally consistent measure of the bias, right? I can say, okay, well, was my model biased in this patient population at predicting control outcomes? And then I can measure that bias and correct for it. Um, and that's the intuition of kind of how it works. It, but the, the benefit to that is that we can develop approaches that make full use of all of these external data that leverage all of the new developments in machine learning and AI and that are guaranteed safe, right? That are guaranteed to increase the efficiency of the trial with and guaranteed not to increase the rate of false positives. So I think it's something that's, uh, that's really attractive for the industry in that sense, that this is, this is a fundamentally cool. better way to run a trial. It will make every trial better. And so we're really looking forward to, you know, as we're, as we're starting to apply these things across clinical trials, especially our first indication of Alzheimer's, of really starting to see the impact of more efficient clinical trials and more efficient drug developments in those areas. Also too, like you said, people are afraid of the placebo. Um, if you were able to take a trial from 50-50 placebo to drug and even make it 60-40, I wonder how much better that would be in terms of sign-up and retention of cohort. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, if you have the choice right between a 50, 50 trial and a 60, 40 trial, a lot of patients would choose, choose that 60, 40 one. So in addition, yeah, like, you know, we're reducing the trial size, which makes it easier to enroll, right? Instead of needing to find a thousand patients, you only need to find 800 patients. That's easier. Uh, but also you're making that trial more attractive by, by randomizing more patients to active treatment. So you kind of have this double effect of, you know, multiple things that are, that are going together to, to make the trial uh, more efficient. And, and, you know, when you think about then these things, one of the key aspects is, you know, can regulators, can the FDA, can physicians down the line still look at a treatment uh, effect estimate that you get and say, well, that's reliable. And that's one I think the most important things is it's it's not just on us to build interesting machine learning methods or use interesting technologies or whatever. Ultimately, it comes down to ensuring that what we deliver to physicians and to regulators is something that they can rely on for making prescribing decisions. And that's one of the key areas where we focused a lot of our effort. Um, and I think it's one of the fundamental differentiators between some of the, the methods that we use and methods different companies in the space use is that we can provide that guarantee and others others cannot. And I think that that's that's like I said, one of the things that we're we're really, really excited about and and doing a lot of effort, educational effort, publishing scientific papers and things like that to to demonstrate that to to all of our customers. What's the furthest furthest along example do you have? How far have you taken this? Has it been used? On clinical trials, like what you know, what's your shining example of uh, how far you come? Yeah, I mean, you know, clinical trials are so they take very long time. <laughs> so this so, is so one of the reasons that's kind of sort of one of the main problems we're we're trying to address. So we don't have anything that's really public that we can talk about that's completed, but we do have a a clinical trial that has just finished at the end of last year which is a phase three clinical trial for a medical device aimed at the treatment of Alzheimer's that we're in the process now. So once the trial is completed, uh, the data are unblinded so you can see who received the treatment and who did not. And then we can do, do a statistical analysis. And so we're kind of in that process now and working with the sponsor uh, and looking forward to any uh, future regulatory filings that may come from that trial. So how much data or how many, how many, let's say people in a cohort are needed for you really to have an effect? Is there a minimum size threshold that you're running into and what's the ballpark? Uh, so I, this is, this depends. So from the training set size, um, it depends a little bit on the disease, but you know, like I said, for Alzheimer's, we have, uh, you know, about 7,000 patients that we've used to train that model in terms of when you're applying it. Um, it can be applied across development. So you, this could, it can be used in very, very small trials. And in some sense, actually, it can have a really huge impact on small trials. So there are methods that we can use based on uh, Bayesian statistics, for example, that can be used in trials. I mean, as small as like 10 patients, for example, where you get a really, really big benefit. Uh, in terms of being able to uh, have more confidence for finding things out of those small trials, um, all the way up to making you know these large phase three trials more efficient. So we can tailor the particular use and the trial design to the needs of the sponsor, from early stage development to late stage development, and even you know we're 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 not actively working in any of these phase four trials, which are happening that we were talking about earlier, but that is an area of interest. Um, and so we're thinking about how we could apply these approaches to phase four trials as well. Um, so trying to develop a really full service system that 
integrates machine learning based methods at a really deep level across the drug development uh, pipeline. So um, within Alzheimer's, uh, what, what effect do you, you believe you'll have or will have? What's your end goal in terms of like metrics? So it depends a little bit for uh, like phase three clinical trials, we can reduce the number of patients by about 20%. And for uh, phase two clinical trials, we can reduce the number of patients by about 33%, so by about a third. And both of those things provide uh, reasonable control of the type one error rates. And that could have a really big impact, you know, the rate of running some of the, and the cost of running some of these trials, particularly, I think, um, you know, when we're talking about these large trials that are that are, that a lot of people are running these days, even phase some phase two trials in Alzheimer's have now thousands of patients in them, just to get to proof of concept. So I think that you know twenty percent to twenty to thirty percent reductions in the number of subjects needed to run those trials would have a really big impact on the field. Uh, what about again dropout metrics? Maybe that could be reduced. So even though the initial cost would be the same to get X number of people. If the dropout rate is, rate is lower, then maybe they, they don't have to overshoot as much. Or, you know, the, uh, the willingness to participate in a particular trial, again, like skewing it from 50-50 blind to 60-40 with treatment. Um, yeah, and, you know, we've also done, we've got, got some simulations where we can show that you can also, even if you had very, very high rates of dropout, um, that using these approaches can improve those trials, basically recover statistical power that you've lost from high rates of dropout. You know, one of the things that happened this year uh, as a result of, of the pandemic is that there was uh, huge problems with non-compliance in lots of clinical trials. Um, and that's just because people, you know, were under uh, you know, shelter in place orders and they couldn't make it to the sites to take their tests. And it took a while for trials to adapt and develop new methods, uh, telemedicine and other kinds of methods for these things. And, you know, some of, so some of the approaches that we, that we have developed can also be used to, to buffer against some of those kinds of circumstances. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to uh, find out more? And if they're a potential client for you, how do they find you? Uh, well, the best place is to go to our website, uh, unlearn.ai, or to, to follow us on Twitter. Uh, I think our Twitter handle is also just at, at unlearnai. Um, those are probably the, the two best places to go for more information. All right. Very good. Well, thanks for coming to the podcast, Charles. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Rich. Uh, thanks for the great questions. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.